As you can tell, we're starting a new sermon series. I am excited uh, to bring to you God's Word. I'm Harold, one of the pastors here. We're starting a new sermon series on following, feeling, and we're going to open up to an ancient prophet by the name of Jeremiah. So if you have your Bibles, and it will also be projected overhead, Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 to 33. All right, Christ Central, let's give our full attention to this. I'll read it for us, these three verses. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31 to 33. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it, I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This is God's word for us today. Well, the prophet Jeremiah promised... And he prophesied, there's going to come a day in which God opens up a whole new way of a relationship with God. Jeremiah, filled with the Spirit of God, promised that God was going to do something, something so miraculous. And it would be the only and new way that the people of God would do what they're supposed to do. You see, up until the New Covenant, up until the New Testament, Jeremiah lived in a day and an age where not one person responded to any of his sermons. He was actually known as the weeping prophet. So I'm in pretty good company if not one person responds. Not one person obeyed. Not one person had an interest. He was actually ridiculed. He was mocked. He was forbidden from getting married or having kids. He was thrown into a cistern. He was humiliated. He was beaten. He was threatened to death. This prophet kept preaching the word of God, the things that God told him to do and say, and not one person responded or obeyed. Here's why. Because people's natural hearts, our hearts, your hearts, Don't want to. I mean, that's really the bottom level conclusion, is it not? I mean, why does anyone in this room follow Jesus? Why does anyone in this room not follow Jesus? Why do you sin? Why do you actually stay faithful or pure? Why? Most of the time, it's because you feel a certain way. And the old covenantal way, the arrangement was, well, you better. God is telling you, God commanded this or else. And what Jeremiah is promising is that the people of God will no longer have to be forced to. People of God will no longer have to feel like, why do I have to? People of God will no longer have hearts that are unsure and scared and half-hearted. People of God, even who have no interest or feel any need to follow God, God's going to supernaturally take those hearts, change them into hearts that want to. No longer do you have to. The new covenant will bring a day and age where God will miraculously change people's hearts into hearts that want to, want to love God and one another like never before. That's the promise. That's the promise. 
It has a lot to do with feelings. I've got two cautions, though, before we move forward. Following feeling. Following thing. Two cautions. We first have to dispel the notion that Christian life has nothing to do with feelings. We do have to tackle that. We've got to make sure that we eliminate that. Dispel the notion that spiritual life or Christian life, especially in my culture or our church or the way I learned it and the way I received it and the way I practice it, has nothing to do with feelings. And I'm afraid to say that this is common and more acceptable in, in heady type of churches, academic churches, where pastors may sound like a little pro, uh, professorial. Uh, they happen in Reformed churches. Reformed people are those who like study and learn and recite confessions. They happen in Presbyterian circles. Hello, hello, Christ Central. This is where it's prone to happen, where Christian life is devoid of, completely detached from, all kinds of feelings. But I'll tell you, my friend, if you're used to a type of Christian life that basically you're telling yourself, well, I believe the right things. Oh, I sure know what the right things to believe are. I can recite them. And you conform and kind of force your life to do the right things, but you never really feel the right things. You think the right things, you do the right things, but your heart and what you feel never appropriately matches up, like ever. I do want to warn you, I think you're going to have a meltdown someday. I mean, after all, if you really follow Jesus Christ, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, shouldn't how we feel follow him too? In some measure, at some point? You know, I'll never forget it as a sophomore in college. I've been going through almost a year's worth of spiritual depression. I look back and I can identify it was a deep spiritual depression. And I came across this verse, 1 John chapter 5, verse 3, that reads this. And when I read it, I literally responded, I didn't know this was in the Bible. I had never come across this verse. Here's what it reads, Apostle John. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. You see, for me in my sophomore year, everything was burdensome. Everything was, I felt guilted or forced to. Everything was mechanical. Everything, you might say, was fake, hypocritical. Because in a lot of ways, my feelings didn't match what I was saying or doing. And then this verse tells me, but this is the love of God. That if you know and are filled with the love of God, somehow his very laws and his commandments are not burdensome. Not burdensome. Then and there I knew Something was off with my feelings. You know the scriptures regularly command and describe Christian life as being something like, rejoice, rejoice. Take joy. Take heart. Be strong and courageous. Other times the scriptures say, mourn with those who mourn. Weep with those who weep. Now, for all of my very smart intellectual, academic friends in this room, are you going to tell me that that is not emotional at all? Yes, we are a church that stays pretty far away from emotionalism, 
But this certainly doesn't mean that there's no emotion at all. These commands could not mean anything less than emotions. The scriptures describe a type of Christian life that Jeremiah had prophesied about where the people of God not only think what is right, do what is right, but their feelings and their hearts follow after Jesus too. You know, this is why we exist. This is actually why we exist as Christ Central. That everything would change as Jesus becomes central. The reason why things don't change is because Christ is really not central to that area of your life. And in our feelings as well, in our emotional health and condition, in the way that we express our emotions, in the way we receive other people's difficult emotions, in interpersonal relationships, in work, in our sleep and rest, don't you see how it affects everything? When Jesus Christ is supreme and central, I do dare believe that the way we feel changes too. Peter Scazzaro launched a series of books. I think his first was Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. And there his thesis in which he contends is this. The lack of attention to or development of emotional health undermines much of our Christian discipleship and growth. Peter Scazzaro not only wrote one book, but a series of books and curriculums have come out from this. The lack of attention to or the lack of development of our emotional health, how we feel, is a huge blind spot in much of our spiritual discipleship and growth. In other words, spiritual maturity involves a development of emotional maturity. Scazzaro would go so far as to say, you cannot be spiritually mature without learning to be emotionally mature. I do think that is scriptural. But here's the second caution. The first caution is, oh, Christian life has nothing to do with feelings. The second is this, everything in Christian life has to do with my feelings. Everything in Christian life has to do with how I feel right now. Well, Yes, in a sense, spiritual maturity and health, once again, does involve our emotional health, but emotional health does not equal spiritual health. Do not make it all about your feelings. Your feelings should serve as a good gauge. It's like when your gas tank runs empty, it beeps, there's a yellow light that comes on. It should alert you to things are wrong. Feelings are good as a gauge, but they're not a guide. They're not the end-all, be-all. There's an author by the name of Henry Nouwen who left his teaching post at Harvard. He was a brilliant philosopher, professor. He left academia because he's a deeply spiritual man and he went in search of a holistic, intimate spirituality. He went traveling. He went to and fro. And in the January 2017 issue of Christianity Today, on this famous author, Henry Nouwen, I just recently discovered that all his life, he had been struggling with same-sex attraction. He was a gay man, but he stayed abstinent and celibate. No wonder when I read some of his literature, it is chock full with the intensity of feelings. And yet, he was so hungry and restless to find it in God. Well, he came across a 25-year-old by the name of Andy. And in Andy, he learned a lifetime's worth of spirituality. Andy was an epileptic. And by seeking to effectively serve and love Andy, here is what Henry Nouwen began to realize. All his life he thought to effectively lead or minister or heal people who are hurting. 
you ought to come from some position of strength or superiority. Oh, you see, oh, I studied that. I went to school for that. And you see, I've got titles behind my name for that. You see, that's my position in power. But what Henry Nowen learned in and through Andy was that the only way you can really serve and heal someone else's wounds is if you share your own. And he wrote a book entitled Wounded Healer in which leadership and ministry and help for those who are most hurting is not ever from a strength position of strength, but a strength of where you share in weakness. And here's what Henry Nouwen, a deeply, deeply contemplative spiritual man, observed about our feelings. Quote, our emotional lives move up and down constantly, don't they? Sometimes we experience great mood swings from excitement to depression, from joy to sorrow, from inner harmony to inner chaos, a little event, a word from someone, a disappointment at work. Many things can trigger such mood swings. Mostly, we have little control over these changes. It seems that they happen to us rather than being created by us. Thus, it is important to know that our emotional life is not the same as our spiritual life. Our spiritual life is the life of the Spirit of God within us. As we feel our emotions shift, we must connect our spirits with the Spirit of God and remind ourselves that what we feel is not who we are. We are and remain. Whatever our moods, God's beloved children. One of my favorite, most powerful passages, the promise of Jesus is John chapter 16, verse 33. He says, in this world, you're going to have tribulation. In this world, you're going to have trouble. In this world, you're going to have sorrow. In this world, you're going to have stress. In this world, you're going to be scared. In this world, it's just going to be hard. But he says, but I'm going to give you peace. Notice what Jesus does not say. Jesus does not promise his peace by taking away the circumstances that would make you scared. Jesus does not promise you peace by making everything better overnight. Jesus promises peace not by immediately calming the storm. You know how he promises peace? I'm going to give you, it's at least a feeling. It's more than a feeling. Of course it is, but it's not less than a feeling. If you don't feel peace, I mean, what does peace mean to you? Jesus promises peace, prevailing peace, in the midst of many feelings. How? How? That's what we're going to explore in this series. Following feeling. But it is the job of the very Spirit of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, to change and affect not only how we think, not only how we behave and what we do, but how we feel. I've just got three practical, practical charges for us or three practical reminders as to how the Spirit of God develops emotional health. This is an introduction to the series. How exactly does the Spirit of God go about making us emotionally healthy? Here's the first. Here's the first. And it's unavoidable. <coughs> Excuse me. The first is God allows and he does use crises and conflicts. God allows and uses crises and conflicts. And my friend, I want to tell you this morning, that's actually a gift. It's an act of intervention when you are hitting the wall. 
It is merciful of God for your work or your spouse to tell you, I've had it. This is ending here. It is a gift when your body falls apart and you have to end up at a hospital for like three days straight. It's actually a gift when you're having all kinds of relational social drama, like nonstop. And you don't know why this is happening. I mean, the level of disappointment and hurt and misunderstanding and the kinds of cattiness that is going back and forth, you can't get a handle on it. Can I suggest to you, even in crises and conflicts, God could be developing something better? And my friend, I want to plead and ask you to do this. I say it as a friend and as a pastor for you because we are all prone to do the reverse. When a crisis comes, when a conflict comes, when a stressed out situation comes, when the fights come, when you feel like it's really hard to go on, can I please ask you, don't check out. Don't look elsewhere. Don't try to medicate. Don't try to escape. Don't try to just do something to make yourself feel better. Because not only does the scripture say it, but just common sense will tell you this. If you don't actually get better, those awful, dreadful feelings are going to come back someday anyways, probably worse. Don't check out, check in. In the midst of the crises, in the midst of the hard feelings that you're feeling, would you dare to look underneath, check underneath the hood, and maybe begin to identify something might deeply be wrong? I mean, recently I've had my share more than I would care to go to a hospital because my wife, which I'll share much more about, thank you for all your care and service. But I'll talk about it in the prolonged pain as we're going through the series. But, you know, good doctors just say, hey, tell me where it hurts. How does it hurt? Where did it hurt? When did it start hurting? Tell me what, where, when, why, how. And nobody takes issue with the doctor saying, oh, you know what, we got to get to the bottom of this. I'm going to order some exams or we might have to probe and cut underneath and figure out what's really wrong. You see, if you don't actually get better, the bad feelings may go away for a time, but they just come back with a rampaging force. Now, what if your emotional condition today and my emotional condition today at root, is caused by something invisible. It's not something scientists can figure out. It's not something any educator or self-help guru can identify. Maybe some of my emotional makeup today, 45 years lived, has something to do with some kind of pattern, a pattern of sin. It could have been that I've been so spoiled. Or it could have been that trauma and trauma and abuse. It could be something psychological. It could be something biological. But it could be something spiritual and emotional that defies any microscope or medical diagnosis or remedy or medicine. And it is actually the Spirit of God giving you a gift. It is a gift. That if and when you melt down, burn out, you've had enough, and your feelings say, oh, I've hit the wall, don't check out. Please. Check deeper. Look underneath. 
I mean, if you have your Bibles, please turn to Jeremiah chapter 17. Please turn to Jeremiah chapter 17, verses 9 and 10. And listen to this prophet, what he preached here, verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The heart is deceitful. It is trickier than any other trick you've ever tried to solve. It is more slippery and silent and stealth mode than you can ever identify. You know the most difficult thing about sin? It's just that you don't see it. The most fatal sickness is the one you don't feel. That's what Jeremiah is saying. Who can understand the heart? Who can understand what's really going on in here? Oh, God doesn't just leave you all hopeless and hanging. He goes on to the next verse and says this. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Now, you see, I noticed two ways in which God exposes and shows you your heart. Because you and I cannot decipher it. We can't get a handle on it. God does two things to show us what your heart is really like. Number one, through his word, he speaks to us. His word gives us light in places of darkness. His word exposes and cuts to the deepest bones and joints and marrows and intentions. But here's a second way. He says, I'm also going to show it through your ways or the fruit of your deeds. Let me translate that. God shows you through conditions or circumstance. Oftentimes, it's consequences. God says, just look at your life. Why do you think this kind of fallout is happening? God is saying, I'll tell you through my word that something rotten was already there, but even in your present circumstance, don't look away. Don't look away. Don't bail out and just try to feel better. No, look deeper in by his word and see what may have been rotting there for many, many years. You know, back to Peter Scazzaro. He offers 10 questions. It's a way of a diagnostic to just kind of give a little health checkup. Doctors give you health checkups. Well, why don't we take an emotional health checkup? Here's the questions he would ask us, the diagnostic. First, first, are you aware of and able to identify and share the feelings you have? And every Asian man says, can you repeat that question? Are you aware of and able to share the feelings you have? Number two, are you able to experience and deal with anger? Everyone gets angry. Absolutely. There's a lot of occasions you should be angry. But do you deal with anger in a way that leads to growth in others and in yourself? Is it healing or destructive? Is it divisive or unifying? Is it godly or not like God? Third, do you resolve conflict in a clear, direct, and respectful way and not how you learned it in the past? The greatest way you learn to resolve your conflict today is usually from your family upbringing. You usually do what exactly your family did or you do the opposite reverse, but you swung the pendulum the other way real hard. Fourth, you don't need approval from other people to feel good about yourself. Fifth, you often admit when you're wrong, readily asking for forgiveness. 
Here's six. Next slide. Those close to you would say, you are not easily offended or hurt. Wow, how this characteristic is precious and vitally needed in our social media circles. With any kind of debate or tension that breaks out over the new Nike slogan or the election or any kind of legislation or the super, super Supreme Court justice nominee, you take any position, any argument. But if Christian people are known to be the one who are the most easily offended, known to be the one who takes it most personally, I assure you, we're not demonstrating that which matches up with the gospel. For Christ Jesus took all of our offense and shame. Here's the next one. You are rarely judgmental and critical of others. You can regularly say no and not overextend yourself and try to do it all. Ninth, you openly admit your failures, losses, weaknesses, and disappointments. And tenth, last but not least, People in great pain and sorrow seek you out. Oh, my dear brother and sister, if those questions are foreign to you, or those questions make you uneasy and they're difficult, like you're trying to seek for like, how do I avoid this topic and you're hiding for cover, let me encourage you. It just goes to show how much good work the Spirit, the Spirit of God has left to do. Because again, the Spirit of God, your Christian life, isn't just about you think right and you do what's right, but He's going to write the law of God upon our hearts, a new heart. Uh, back to Peter Scazzaro, who actually visited his church right on the turn of the 1999 or 2000, is one of the most vibrant, diverse congregations I'd ever seen over in New York. I partied with them on a New, uh, new Year's Eve party. Um, Peter Scazzaro came out on stage, and I was just so admiring and blessed by really what was going on at the church. But just before he'd written these books, I had no idea that in the mid-90s, his wife, Jerry, came up to him and said, Peter, I quit. Peter was like, quit what? Like, quit your work or you quit this hobby? No, here's what Jerry was telling his, his, her husband, the church planner, pastor, I quit you. I quit marriage, and I'm quitting the church. And what that set off in Peter Scazzaro's life, my friend, was a two-year period in which he says, I was dying to do anything just to make it feel better. But it got worse. But in the two-year hot seat of crises and counseling and conflict, where his wife, Jerry, had to share unfiltered of all the things that Peter just didn't see, Here's what Peter Scazzaro shared as a conclusion. All of his seminary training, all of his church background, all of his mission trips, all of his Bible study, all of his praying fasting, all of his churchy stuff, he said, but I had never paid attention to this area of my life, which is called emotional health. And guess what? Because that crisis and conflict made him hit rock bottom, when you hear the name Peter Scazzaro now, that's what you know him for, for all the emotionally healthy church, emotionally healthy pastor, emotionally healthy marriages. This, from this seed of weakness and brokenness, God has developed such strength and such healing for so many, including myself. 
So how does God develop emotional health? He does it through crises and conflicts. Here's second. Of course, he does it through community. He does it through community. The collisions you have. The counseling you should hear. The different perspectives. People who sincerely care. People who will comfort and carry you when you can't get through that day. Any decent, intimate community can and will help you. Girl Scouts. Book clubs. Drinking buddies. Fantasy football buddies. PTA. Coaches. Alumni. All of it can be used by God. You tell me anybody who's recovering or getting healthy, they have some kind of community. But how much more? How much more then will a community filled with the very spirit of Jesus Christ help? How much more a community called the church filled with the very presence of Jesus help? Jeremiah's prophecy of this new covenant is entirely plural, is it not? There will come a day. Because you always felt like you had to. You were guilted to. You were forced to. God says, no, there's going to come a day I'm going to write my law upon your hearts. To the house of Israel and of Judah. The house. Communal. In a committed covenantal relationship. All of it together. Done together. Meaning you cannot love God. And you cannot love others. Like God wants you to. All by yourself. You need a whole community of Jesus to do it. The whole community. The whole community. If you're 25, you need 35-year-olds. If you're 35, you need to listen and learn from 45-year-olds. If you're 45, we need 65-year-olds. But we have none. We're on our own. Good luck. But if you're 45 or 55, you need 18-year-olds. You really do. They remind you that life was once full of promise and joy and energy and health. The community all together, anyone who has the spirit of Jesus Christ, do you actually believe that? If you have the spirit of Jesus Christ, do you actually think you have nothing to learn from that person? You have the spirit of Jesus Christ. Do I come to this person and say, oh, I've got nothing to learn or gain from this person? No, that's the very presence of Jesus embodied in that brother or sister. And it's in community that we learn how to love God and one another from the heart. I'm so glad you're here this Sunday morning as we kick off this series. I'm so glad you're at any Bible-preaching, Bible-believing, Jesus-honoring church. But can I ask you to consider, do you have, wherever you go for worship service on a Sunday, do you have someone that you can confide in? Do you have someone where you can share your deepest griefs and burdens with? Do you have someone that you can confess your secrets and sins to? Do you have someone that would encourage you and cheer you on on a regular basis? Do you have someone that would check you and you can check them? I just listed off five things. They're all straight from Scripture. And here at Christ Central, my friend, you will not experience the kind of community that God wants you to have unless you join a small group. That's just by sheer size and scale. If you join a small group, this is where we promise and we're committed to give you these types of relationships in which we can grow in love for God and for one another. Here's the last. How does God develop emotional health? Crises and conflicts. Second, community. 
Last thing, it's our theme. Following, feeling. Following, feeling. Let me just unpack that a little and we're done. This is never nice and neat. Well, usually it's not nice and neat. You may not have clear directions or navigation. But again, on the one hand, don't neglect all your feelings. And on the other hand, make everything about your feelings. Thank God. Thank God then. We get to follow someone who is familiar with every kind of feeling. This is why in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, the author gives us one of the most encouraging promises you could ever find. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I love that little phrase, a high priest who is tempted as we are. Question, when are you most tempted? How are you most tempted? I mean, Edwards answered this question long ago. Why do you ever sin? Like, why does anyone sin? You and I are most tempted because we feel like it. We have an intensity of feelings to do that which is outside of God's word and God's will. Do we not? And here it says, Jesus knows all about that too. He knows how to be tempted through your feelings. And we can follow someone who's familiar with every feeling, even the tempting ones. Until you read and appreciate the prophets in particular, God may uh, seem like a robot or a one-dimensional or passionless kind of cartoon character. But as I was repeatedly reading the first 30 chapters and all the way through, you cannot help but move from Jeremiah and sense God is like a jilted and sensed husband. He says, I'm like your husband. You've broken my covenant. It's futile and it's failing. And do you know why God says I'm like a husband? Here's what he says all the way throughout, repeated. He says, I'm like a jilted and sensed lover when your spouse or your BFF cheats on you publicly and repeatedly on the roadside. Go and read and appreciate the prophet Jeremiah. God reveals himself to his people and says, do you know what I feel like? I feel like a jilted, over-the-top lover who has been just abandoned and humiliated in public. Then in chapter 31, right in our passage, you're going to read these two verses, which are astounding, and yet, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. That's verse 3. And then you're going to read in verse 20 of the same chapter. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. Why so much emotional language? Why does God reveal himself to the range of human emotions? It's because through his revelation, he wants to touch and affect yours. A cheated on lover, an overwhelmed, desperate, 
lovesick parent over a wayward child? God says, that's sometimes what I feel like in my relationship with you. And God ultimately came, showed up in the flesh, in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ came and like he rejoiced too much and partied too much and laughed too loud with the most despised people. He, he got despised. Jesus got really, really angry with respectable religious professional people who were hypocrites. And so they got angry with him. Jesus wept once so hard that it turned into blood. God revealed himself ultimately in Jesus, full of human feelings, full of human passions, but Jesus not once ever stopped following God his Father. And that's what this series is all about. That's what you and I can do too. Because God, the gospel, the new covenant, never asks you, hey, uh, can you please work out your heart here? Can you improve it? Can you make it better? Can you present a better heart? Can you fake it or pretend? Please, the old covenant religious way would be this. God expects an asses of you, so produce it. No, Jeremiah prophesied of a new covenantal way and the gospel way, and it is such good news. God doesn't ask you for your old, tired, wayward, beaten down, dead hearts. God says, I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to write my law upon your heart. And you're going to get a new heart when you see and sense that Jesus lost his. My friend, Christian life is not about trying harder to feel right. It's about trusting in a Savior who felt everything with you and for you. And when you see and you turn to believe in him, cling to him, follow him, follow him, in the midst of every and all kinds of human feelings, you don't have to stop following God. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we ask for your grace and blessing by your spirit, not only upon this word, but throughout this week and in all the series of sermons to come. And we ask, oh Jesus, that you would take a grip of our hearts in the deepest ways and you would continue to transform them by your word, by your spirit, most of all by the presence of Jesus Christ. Hear us, we pray, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.